please grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to continue with our study in the book of Philippians. And today we're uh, getting into chapter four, the last chapter of the book of Philippians. And as we begin, I want us just to kind of transport back 2,000 years ago and get a feel for what it would have been like when that letter originally came to that sweet church. So first century Philippi, you think about this with me, the church has grown significantly in the 10 years since it was planted. They're still gathering, probably at Lydia's home, but at this point the church has grown so much that they're probably out in the courtyard as well. They had just heard news that Epaphroditus is back, he's alive, he's well, and he's got news from the Apostle Paul and a letter that they're excited to hear. And so one of the elders stands up and he prays and they probably sing a song, a psalm of ascent maybe, or a hymn of praise. And Epaphroditus is there and the elder recognizes Epaphroditus. And even as we learn in Philippians, they receive him with great joy in their celebration. And Epaphroditus is explaining all that's going on as Paul is back in prison. And so one of the elders, he grabs the letter and he begins to read what was that like as they listen to the elder read Paul's words he starts reading and the Holy Spirit begins immediately to minister to their hearts they're encouraged by Paul's great affection for the elders and the deacons and the entire church as he's just expressing his love he's talking about how he longs to be back with them to see their face And he begins to unpack the centrality of the gospel, the the necessity for all of the Christians that are gathered there to adopt the mind and the example of Christ. Then he allows their hearts to soar as he starts talking about Christ before he became a man, his pre-incarnate glory, and then the incarnation, and then the humiliation as he became a slave and then went to the cross, and then his death and his resurrection, and his ascension. And all of them are sitting there and listening to this, and their hearts are full, and they're growing in their desire to live for Christ and love Christ and truly walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And a hush kind of settles over the courtyard, and there's a solemn happiness, and the Spirit of God is showing the glory of Christ to all these believers And they're reminded, we got to press on. We got to strive together. All of their hearts are knit and united, and they're saying yes and amen. And then all of a sudden, he gets to chapter four, and the needle on the record just scratches. Because what Paul does is he says, and now I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to think in the same way. You think, whoa, whoa. Paul just publicly exposed conflict that is going on in the church. And what makes this even more spectacular is that he doesn't use general terms like he's been using all the way up to this point. Because now here in chapter 4, he gets very specific and he uses these two ladies' names. Imagine if you were one of them sitting there and your name gets Becca, gets mentioned. (laughs) 
Jessica gets mentioned. I mean, this is Holy Scripture. The Apostle Paul naming two ladies specifically. They're probably not sitting next to each other. They're, they're probably on opposite sides of the house. But Paul calls out this falling out and he brings it to the front and center. And now they have the responsibility as well as the church to respond to what Paul has just exposed. Now, let me remind you as we come here to chapter 4 that the Philippian church is one of the healthiest churches ever. I mean, that's what history tells us. But even they, they couldn't escape personal conflict and the threats of division. You know, we tend to think of threats to the church and the, and the realm of false teaching and heresy. And while that's certainly true, the threat of disunity in a Bible-believing, doctrinally sound church is just as, if not more, dangerous. And you know this by way of experience, because if you've been in a church for any period of time, you've, you've seen it, you've witnessed it, maybe you've been a part of that kind of disharmony in the church. Unresolved conflict destroys relationships. But not only that, it could completely distract a church from its mission to advance the gospel. And if there's anything, look, that we've learned from Paul's letter to the Philippians, it's this, that Christians must be dramatically different than the world. And he said this over and over and over again. We have the gospel, which means that we have a different citizenship, we have a different mindset, we have a different attitude, we have a different hope, we have a different joy, we're running a different race, we're pursuing a different reward. All of those things are true, but you know what else is true? We also have a different relational harmony that must be preserved because that's what the gospel does. It unites our hearts. We, we sang about it. We, we preach about it. And here in chapter 4, Paul is going to highlight for us how the gospel brings the kind of joy and contentment and peace that he'll say it surpasses all understanding. But listen, in order for us to experience that in its fullness, we have to be willing to listen, to hear, to obey all the things that God provides as the common means of grace to preserve our unity. So with that, let's read Philippians. We'll start in chapter 3 and verse 20, and then we'll go down to 4.3. Here's God's word to us. Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by his working through which he is able to even subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside me in the gospel, with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Oh, Father, would you please help us to understand this text so that it would produce a greater longing and desire to remain unified in this local church here. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, here's our main idea. In Philippians 4, 1 through 3, Paul reminds us that having the same mind in the Lord will help us stand firm and stay united. Paul reminds us that having the same mind in the Lord will help us stand firm and stay united. Look, if we want to protect and preserve our our fellowship and our witness, we must strive together as a church for unity. If we allow disunity in our church body, it's going to wreak havoc on our happiness and our harmony. So we must, we must work at resolving conflict so that the church, this church, can be a gospel light to a very dark city and a dark world. So let me provide you with the outline. Really simple. We're just looking at three verses, and we're going to hang our hat on four major headings. First, we're going to see Paul express his great love for the church, and that's there in verse 1. And then he, in verse 2, he's going to exhort the kind of same-mindedness that is essential to preserve unity. Then in verse 3, he's going to enlist the help of others. And then finally, he's going to encourage his fellow workers, express his great love, exhort same-mindedness, enlist the help of others, and encourage his fellow workers. Look there at verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, Paul, he's going to get to a series of exhortations. There's going to be just a string of imperatives, but before he does that, he strings together five terms expressing his great affection for the church. And you see it right there. My brothers, loved, longed for, joy, and crown. And nowhere else in Paul's writings does he do this. Nowhere else does he gush with such endearing terms. Just one sentence, he's just pouring it on. My love and affection for this body of believers. And so first, again, the expression of love I just want to look at these phrases real quickly to give a, get a sense of Paul's affection for the church. He begins with Adolfoi, my brothers. He's emphasizing the, the familial aspect of their relationship. They're close-knit. Now, obviously, when he says brothers, he's also talking about the women. But these are his siblings. They're all part of the same family. And he calls them my loved ones the, or beloved, agape toy. And he uses that word twice in just this one verse, and it it underscores the deep affection that he has for them. Uh, Look back in 2.12. Paul does the same thing there. He expresses his great love for them, but he does that calling them to obedience. In Philippians 2.12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And right before he says that, he laid out Christ's great love for us, displayed, demonstrated through his obedience. You see this, love and obedience, they go hand in hand. It's the pastor's love for the flock that the pastor calls them to an obedient lifestyle. To tell them to press on, to to, to conform their lives to the image of Christ. That's done out of love. And that's what Paul is doing doing here. And this twofold reminder of love, it's really the springboard to which Paul is going to call these women to obedience. 
So the believers in Philippi, they're, they're family. They're loved by Paul. Paul. Paul loves the Philippians so much so that when he's apart from them, it says here that he longs for them. Look there at the next phrase. He says, my brothers whom I long for. At the beginning of the letter in 1.8, Paul says, for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And he says that his partner Epaphroditus feels the same way. He longs for them. And it's just a reminder to us, this is why we just can't do church online. We can't be on silos. We have to actually be together. If you're living the, the private, solo Christian life, you're missing out big time. Well, we need to love and long to be with one another. Besides being brothers and long for, Paul says this, my joy and my crown. Paul felt this way really about all his converts, but especially the Philippians. We see what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. He says this, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? He says, is it not even you before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. It's fascinating. The thing that Paul takes great delight in is actually people, that they're walking in the Lord. Philippians 2.2 says, fulfill my joy. How do we do that, Paul? Here it is, that you think the same way, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, and thinking on one purpose. The way that you can increase my joy, any pastor's joy, is if we all get along. If we all have peace and harmony and same-mindedness in the Lord. But Paul also says here, you are my crown, which means that they're his adornments. They're his source of pride. They're his crowning achievements. And by evoking this Olympic imagery, what Paul is saying to his beloved brothers and sisters that this prize for which he's running, it's not just an individualistic achievement, but he's looking at the entire church and their maturation in the Lord. You see, when we can play a role in helping others come to Christ or watching them grow in Christ, oh, that is precious to us. That is our prize. That is our reward. And in heaven, we can't see it now, but in heaven, every evangelistic opportunity you have Every time it feels uncomfortable, but you feel that compulsion of the Spirit to share the Word of God, and you don't know where that goes, but it's a seed planted, well, in heaven, you're going to see the impact of that. And that is going to be your joy and your crown. Now, with that love sprinkled over the church, Paul now sounds the command, and there it is. He says, stand firm. Stand firm. The word is stako. Literally means to stand upright. But when used figuratively, it could refer to standing firm in the faith. So in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 and 13, we're told that we need to stand firm against the devil. We need to dodge and deflect his fiery arrows that are coming at us. And the insinuation is, if you don't stand, what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall. The opposite of standing firm is stumbling, it's faltering, it's falling. And here in Philippians 4, Paul applied this idea of standing firm in relation to the unity of the church. We are to stand firm, to persevere, to remain steadfast and immovable as it relates to our unity as a body. And this isn't the first time that he mentions this crucial principle. Look back in chapter 1 and verse 27, the theme verse. Paul says, 
only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances. And this is what he says, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel. Now notice this word stako, stand, it's not just about standing, but it's also about striving. Right? There's somewhat of a paradox here because to stand firm means that we also have to strive for Christ's likeness. And so the reality is a Christian who's not moving forward, a Christian who's not growing, a Christian who's not maturing is typically falling backward. Well, how exactly then are we to stand firm? Paul gives the answer, and it's right there in the text. He says, in the Lord. In the Lord. He is the source of our strength. And in the Lord simply means, of course, that we're saved. But not only that, to be in the Lord means that we're under the umbrella of his grace, that we're relying on the Spirit to carry out his will and his word. If you are in the Lord, you love the Lord. You love his word. You believe his word. You behave according to his word. And you make his priorities your priorities. The question to you is, are you in the Lord? Are those things true of your own hearts? I like the way one commentator put it. He said this, to stand or stand fast in the Lord is neither to wander out of him, nor even to waver in connection with him, but to remain immovable in fellowship with him, to live in him without pause, to walk in him without digression, to love him without rival, and to serve him without compromise. That's exactly what Jesus meant in John chapter 15 when he said, he who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And then he adds this, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, how do we abide in him? One way is seen in 1 John chapter 2, where the apostle there says, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And all I have to say is, Christian, you cannot overlook how important it is for you to daily be in the Word of God. You cannot grow, you cannot mature, you cannot be more like Christ if you are not prioritizing that in your life. If you want to be with him without pause, walk in him without digression, love him without rival and serve him without compromise, then you need to be in the word. And God's promise to you is if that you commit to doing that. If you commit to being in the word, he's going to be the source of your stability. He's going to help you stand firm. He's going to help you fight against temptation. He's going to help you fulfill the promise to which he has called you to. Psalm 125 verse 1 says this, Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. I love that. Well, listen, now that Paul has set the mood through this expression of affection, he now returns to one of his central themes, and that theme is the correct thinking, Christ-like thinking. And what's most striking about verse 2 is how direct and to the point Paul is here. So far, all the appeals to unity have been very general, but now he gets very specific. 
So point one is the expression of his love. Now point two is the exhortation toward same-mindedness. Look there at verse two. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Now you say, well, who are these two women? Well, we don't know much about them. We do know that the name Iodia, it means prosperous journey, and Syntyche means fortunate. What else do we know? Not much. There's not a whole lot. But even though nothing else is said of them in Scripture, we can draw some reasonable conclusions just based on these few verses. So what are those conclusions? First of all, they're both members of the same church. Now that's clear. And we don't know what their specific relationship is. Are they mother and daughter? Maybe mother and daughter-in-law? Are they they sisters? Are they friends? Are they ministry partners? Are they deaconesses? Uh, we, We don't know. But no matter what their human relationship, they are sisters in the Lord in this local congregation. Verse 3 tells us that their names are written in the book of life. So even though there's some sin going on here, they're clearly believers. They love the Lord. They've been serving him faithfully. Well, second observation, it would appear that these women had some sort of prominent role in the church. Now think back to how the church at Philippi started. Remember, Paul and Silas go into the city. There is no synagogue. There's not enough men to actually create a synagogue. And so they're looking for where the believer's at. They go down by the river, and that's where the ladies are gathered. Devote godly women who are there, and they're praying. And so Lydia hears the gospel. She gets saved. She opens her home. And now the church begins in her house. And maybe these two ladies are there with Lydia at the river praying. Even if they weren't and they got converted later, we know that they're about the Lord's business because they're faithfully serving alongside Paul. Verse 3 says, These women have contended together alongside me in the gospel. Well, a third observation is that they're in the midst of an argument. This argument's causing disunity. There's strife between the two women. And it's significant enough that It's traveled 800 miles from Macedonia to Rome and it's been reported to Paul while he's under house arrest. And Paul, upon hearing of this tension and this threat, he thinks it's serious enough that he writes in the word of God, which lasts forever, these two names and addresses this particular issue. Well, fourth observation is that the deeds or the details, excuse me, of their feud are curiously absent. Paul doesn't say anything about what they're arguing about. He doesn't give us a a clue to the gravity of their disagreement. He, He doesn't go into details. He doesn't tell us if it's a theological issue that they're debating, if it's just a personal issue. Maybe it's a personnel issue. Who who do we set up in this area of ministry? Who who does this? And they couldn't agree. He doesn't go into those details. But inspired by the Spirit of God, it's just enough to say that they're at odds. They're not getting along. They're arguing. Well, whatever the disagreement, I do believe that this couldn't have been a major doctrinal issue. You say, well, Don, why, why do you think that? Well, because typically, how does Paul handle those? Oh, he, he writes about those. You, you want to get the Trinity wrong? You want to get salvation uh, apart from uh, faith wrong? Oh, he's going to write about that. The Trinity wrong? He's going to write about that. 
But he doesn't specify here. But we see him do that in Galatians. We see him do that in Corinthians. So whatever's going on here, it seems like it's a, it's a personal thing. A fifth observation is that Paul considered the issue serious enough to not only address it, but to call out these women and to do it with urgency. Look there in the text. He says, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche. Now, what's interesting about that is that he names names. In chapter one, when he's talking about those that are opposed to him, he doesn't name any names. When he talks about the enemies of the cross of Christ, he doesn't name any names. But here, he names them. And it's interesting as you read commentaries because some people think, oh, it's public shaming and you should never do that. If Paul's doing it and it's in the Bible, there must be a good reason. The reality is this conflict, it was already public. People knew about it. It was probably dividing the church. And because it was poisonous, Paul had to address it. What's that? What's interesting also is that the way that he phrases this, he puts their names first. Iodia, I urge you. Syntyche, I urge you. And he, and he addresses both of them. He's pleading with them. It's like he's, he's looking at Iodia in the face and saying, Iodia, please, I'm begging you, be at peace with your sister. And then he turns to Syntyche and says, Syntyche, I'm begging you. Be at peace. Be reconciled with your sister. Now, do you realize that calling these women out by name, it's not Paul being a jerk. It's demonstrating a great love. And I'm sure the church would have recognized that. Do you realize what it says about the congregation that Paul knows that he can call them out by name and the, the congregation's not going to second guess his love or his respect for them, rather than feeling demeaned or even ridiculed, I think they would have rejoiced that someone loved them enough to get involved so they would be reconciled. Paul's public addressing of this issue, I think, is an indication of a deep love and a deep devotion for their unity. Now, there's a very important lesson in all this. Because I think what Paul is doing here is he's providing us, even now, 2,000 years later, with principles for peacemaking. How can we as believers seek peace when there's division among the body? What do we do? How do we handle that? Whose responsibility is it to initiate peacemaking and reconciliation when there are broken relationships? You know whose responsibility is? It's yours. It's always yours. Husbands and wives, how well do you know this principle? Do you want peace in your marriage? Peace never comes if both of you are proud, holding grudges, insisting on your own way, not putting one another's needs above your own. If, if both of you are resisting that, then when is there ever going to be peace and harmony? What does it take? It takes someone to humble themselves and to initiate. Well, what if you're the innocent party, though, and you've been sinned against? 
Someone has done something wrong. Someone has hurt you. Someone has said something. Whose responsibility is it then to reconcile? It's still yours. If you're just waiting around for someone to make it right, that might not happen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Let me show you this from the words of Jesus himself. Jesus giving us a picture of how we're to be reconciled to our brothers. In chapter 5 of 22 in Matthew, Jesus writes this or says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin, and whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Obviously here, the angry brother, he's the guilty one. And he needs to deal with that sin. But notice what Jesus says there in verse 23. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. You see, if you're mad at them or if they're mad at you, you need to go and be reconciled. If you're waiting for the other person to make the first move, then really you're out of step with the Lord's desire for you. Now listen, why does Jesus take reconciliation so seriously? I mean, does Paul have to get involved here? Can't these ladies just continue to be at odds and everything go fine? You don't have to get along with everyone, right? Wrong. Romans 12, 18. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Look, the reality is it might not happen. But you can be sure that you're going to do everything you can to try to make it happen. Because that's what a Christian does. They always seek reconciliation. We need to be serious about reconciliation because sinfully unresolved conflicts fall short of the same mindedness that Christ calls us to. Listen, church, how are we going to esteem someone as more important than ourselves and simultaneously hold a grudge against them? It's just not going to work. Our testimony is going to be shattered. You just can't do both. Okay, so how how does Paul deal with this? How does he deal with this broken relationship? First, I want you to notice that Paul handles this with extreme care. He could have just flexed his apostolic muscles. He could have just commanded them to get along, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't lecture them. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't shame them. He simply, the Bible tells us, he urges them. He urges. In fact, there's no imperative here. There's two imperatives in this section. One of them is to stand in verse 1. The other imperative is to help in verse 3. But here in verse 2, there's no imperative. You say, well, what's the difference between an imperative and an entreaty or an urging? That word entreaty carries the idea of actually coming alongside someone. So Scott, if I get your boys up here and I say, drop and give me 50, do 50, that's one thing. But if I get down there with them, 
and I'm doing it with him. Let's go, fellas. Let's go. Come on. 22, 23. There's a difference there. I'm coming alongside them. I'm calling them to an action, but I'm right there with them. That's what Paul is doing right here. He's compassionately compelling them to be reconciled and stand together. And so he urges them, get along. Your ESV might say, to agree in the Lord. The the NASB says, to live in harmony in the Lord. But literally, he urges both of them to think the same way. This whole epistle, if you haven't figured it out yet, is all about thinking a certain way. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Romans 15. Romans 15, let me show you the same concept in Romans 15 and verse 5. There Paul writes, Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you, listen to this, to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. All those beginning chapters, highly theological. You get to chapter 12, it changes. Now it's very practical. And right here at the height, he's saying, look, we all have to be of the same mind. We have to get along. We have to, we have to be of one mind. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Be restored. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. See, as Christians... We need to have the same minds. It's not negotiable. We, we should have the same priorities, similar convictions. But I think, look, the most important phrase in all this is in the Lord. In the Lord. When two people are in the Lord, they're not only one with him, but they're one with one another. And it is the fact that we are in the Lord because the Lord has united us together. Uh, Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. And look there at verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling. Very similar language to Philippians 1.27. So walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. How do we do that? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. And look at verse 3. Being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our being in the Lord does not create our unity, but it reminds us that we must preserve it. We have to maintain it. Maintaining our unity will be so much easier to do when we realize that Jesus is Lord of all. That means something. It means we submit to his lordship. We submit to his word. He is the master. He is the Lord over the conflict. If you have unresolved conflict with someone, and if you're angry and bitter and resentful, your major problem is not that person. Guess who your major problem is? It's the Lord. Look, Paul's willingness to call out these two women it's just a testament of how much he cared for them. He cares for the church's unity. He's not into this kind of fake mentality of kumbaya, everything's okay, just sweep everything under the rug. No, if there's an issue, deal with it. Philippians is a book about the gospel and about joy 
and joy comes from doing hard things. You can't ignore those fights. You can't ignore those conflicts because guess what? They just don't go away by themselves. How tempting is it for us to ignore relational difficulty in the church? I mean, seriously, it is so much better, we think, just stay quiet, time will make it pass, and we have this false conception that the problem is just somehow going to go away, and that's not how it works. So Paul, he addresses the problem, he gets to the heart of the problem, he says, enough is enough, and he says, I urge both of you to be on the same page. And there's a part of us that say, yes, we need to be on the same page. We need to be unified. So Paul, tell us which one is right. Tell her she's not on the same page as me and she needs to be on the same page as me if we want to get along. And if you just do that, then we can move forward. But Paul does not do that. He doesn't take sides. He just says, no, you need to agree in the Lord. You need to figure this out and settle your differences by looking to Christ. Now, it's true that sometimes we have to draw a line in the sand. There is this reality to we're not going to be able to get along because you're teaching or you're doing something that is inconsistent with the Scripture. But we need to be very clear that it is a biblical principle and not just your preference. There is a big difference between the two. Paul says here that that's not the problem. These two sisters, they can resolve their unlike-mindedness and become like-minded. That doesn't mean they have to be perfectly aligned on every single detail. We don't have to agree with everything and everyone in the church in order for us to get along, but there is a spirit that's always going to pursue unity. Unity, not uniformity, but unity. And no one knew this better than Paul. I want you to think back to one of the heights of his ministry back in Acts chapter 15. It's the Jerusalem council. He's there with his boy Barnabas. They're pleading with the Jerusalem council that, hey, we're saved by faith alone. That's how we're saved. Let's not bring these Gentiles under the bondage of the law. And it's a great celebration. It's a great victory. And yet right after that, something goes down between Paul and Barnabas. They get into an argument about John Mark. Barnabas wants to take John Mark, but Paul's like, no, I'm not having that. That guy ditched us. He abandoned us. And Luke doesn't give all of the details. He just kind of states it matter-of-factly. But there's a big division between Paul and Barnabas. And so Barnabas, being the son of encouragement that he is, he wraps his arm around John Mark, and they go, and they continue to do ministry. Paul grabs Silas, and he goes somewhere else. And they have a fallout. And there's a fracture there. And yet later on in life, as Paul writes, he mentions Mark several times. And in fact, in his last letter, in 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy, hey, when you come, bring brother Mark with you. He's useful to me. Now, some speculate that Mark is actually with him as he's writing Philippians, which makes this all the more powerful because as he's writing Philippians, he's probably thinking back to that occasion and saying, you know what, it's just not worth it. Figure this out in the Lord. So Paul, 
He wants us to avoid disunity in the church and to do that at all costs. He knows all too well how quickly it could disrupt gospel partnership. And so Paul does two things in verse 3. First, he requests that a true companion step in and help resolve this issue. And the second thing he does is somewhat surprising. He praises them. The two women who are having a dispute and had affected the church, he, he positively characterizes them as he talks about how they're co-laborers in the gospel and their names are written in the book of life. But let's look first at verse 3 here, the enlistment of help. The enlistment of help. Paul says, Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel. Now, here is the second imperative in the passage. The first is stand firm in verse 1, and this one here is very clear. It's help these women. Paul, what he does is he uses an imperative to recruit help to help these women be reconciled. And again, I think this is helpful instruction. Notice the way that Paul deals with this. Okay, He doesn't just say, hey, Yodia and Syntyche, stop being petty and cut it out. I don't like the way some commentators make it sound like women. They're always arguing and complaining. It's humanity. It's sin. It has nothing to do with women. But it makes sense here that what Paul is doing is he's recruiting help. But before he does that, he gives us some steps to resolve the conflict. First, he says, look, you need to submit to one another, Lord. Be of the same mind. Second, what he says is you need to try to work this issue out just the two of you. Just the two of you. Don't go get people involved. Don't go get a cheering section. Just try to work it out. And if you can't do that, then we need to recruit the help of someone else. We need a mediator to come in and kind of oversee this reconciliation. So go and find a mature, spirit-filled, godly third party that can provide oversight to bring about unity in the church. Now let's face it, we're all guilty of lacking love and of being proud and insisting on our own way. But every time we let those attitudes continue, we create a spirit of unity. And so we need the church to come in and engage. We need someone to help bring about reconciliation which raises the question, who is Paul talking about here? Because the text says, uh, genuine companion. If you have the ESV, it says, true companion. If you're reading the NIV, it says, true partner. The King James says, yoke fellow. What in the world does that mean, a yoke fellow? Well, there's lots of debate on who this person is. I actually read someone who said, Paul forgot his name, and so they just said, hey, true companion. I don't think that's the case. Others speculate that it was an elder or a deacon. Still others say it was maybe Timothy or Titus. I don't know why he wouldn't just mention their name since he did before. Um, J-Mac, he says that this is actually a proper name. Susagos is the name. So it says, well, we shouldn't translate a true companion, just say the actual name. And you say, well, Susagos, that's kind of a strange name. Well, so is Yodia and Syntyche, Right? But MacArthur says that it seems like this is just his name. But there's another interpretation that kind of intrigues me, and I realize I'm in the minority here, so I don't put a whole lot of stock in it. But I do think 
that when Paul says my true companion, he's almost leaving it vague for a reason. Paul does something similar in Galatians 6.1 when he says, Brethren, if any of you is caught in any trespass, then he says this, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So as you hear that, you have to say, well, who's, who's spiritual? I think what Paul is saying is, look, true companion, if you're about the gospel, if you love reconciliation, if you love church unity, then engage. Sure, the elders, the deacons, they might lead that front, but this is really instruction for all of us. It really is. If, if we were, we're serious about every member ministry, and if we're all a family, if there's an issue going on in our home, yes, Jess and I need to deal with it, but our kids are involved too. I've had my kids come up to me and be like, Daddy, mm-mm, that wasn't right. That wasn't loving. All of us, all of us need to be striving for unity together as a family unit. That certainly makes sense, I think, in the context of the church as he's writing to them. At the very least, we know that Paul doesn't say, hey, everyone, stay out of this. Just let them handle it. No, he's recruiting mature believers to be involved, to pursue unity. So Paul, he expresses his love to the women. He exhorts the ladies to be of the same mind. He enlists others to come alongside and help. And then finally, just lastly, he encourages his fellow workers with the reminder that their names are in the book of life. Look at verse 3. He says, Also, Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. And I won't say much here. We don't know much about Clement. He's obviously a well-known man in the church. They knew him. We don't know much about him because this is the only time he's mentioned the New Testament. The naming of these individuals and their identities are really not as important as the fact that their names are written in the book of life. And I think that's how Paul wants to end this particular discussion. They're in a race together. They're on the same team. They're pursuing unity together. And what we need to realize as a church is, look, we're all in this together. If we're going to uphold the gospel, if we're going to proclaim the gospel, we need to be unified. Imagine inviting someone to the church. You're telling them how great the church is, how the word is preached, the songs that we sing glorify the Lord. We have such a sweet community of believers who love one another. And they come to church, and they're kind of watching and observing, and they notice that two people are giving each other the stink eye. They're not talking. They're talking bad about one another. They say, what's going on here? Oh, yeah, they, they don't get along. They're members of your church. Yeah, they're members, but they, they hate each other. How is that going to draw people into, wow, the gospel really transforms? When there's disunity, when there's disharmony, we have to attack that with everything that we got. Paul says, look, these aren't unbelievers. Their names are written in the book of life. And like everything he said up to this point, if, if your citizenship is in heaven, if Christ has saved you, if he's died for you, if he's given you his spirit, if he's made you one even as he and the spirit and the father are one, then you, church, 
You must be one. So let's end with this question. Why should we attack this issue aggressively? Because small conflict, if not dealt with, will grow into big conflict. Private disputes turn into public disturbances. This is how it works. There's a disagreement. It doesn't get resolved, and then it disrupts the whole church. People start to take sides, and usually they don't side with facts. They side with friends. So I like them more. I've known them longer, so I'm on their team. You don't even know what the issue is, but I'm just with them. Let me sound out a warning as we come to a close. If you find yourself talking to others in our church in a way that sows discord, in a way that chips away at our unity, then you're putting yourself at odds with the Lord. If you're trying to get people to side with you against others in the church, you are in danger of being divisive. A divisive person is simply someone who uses an issue of disagreement to try to drive a wedge between brothers and sisters in the church. Let me show you how serious this is. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. You say, Dom, does, does God take division seriously? You tell me. Proverbs chapter 6, and look at verse 16. There are six things which Yahweh hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked thoughts, feet that hasten to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and look at this, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Divisiveness is a serious sin. You think about 1 Corinthians, and Paul is writing and saying, look, there's all kinds of immorality going on here. There's incest, there's fornication, there's homosexuality, there, there's, there's drunkenness, there's all these bad things that are going on. But do you know how Paul starts 1 Corinthians? With division. Some are saying, I'm of Apollo. Some are saying, I'm of Paul. Some are saying, I'm of Christ. He begins by saying, look, this is destructive. And a church is not going to be healthy if they're divided. And so the Lord, Paul, all the Old and New Testament writers make it very clear that divisiveness is a serious, serious sin. I have seen churches split. I've been a part personally of a very ugly and bad church separation. Some of you have too. And there's long and lasting negative impact as a result. I think oftentimes we think it's heresy. It's false doctrine. I remember hearing a story about two pastors, one the lead pastor, one the associate pastor. The associate pastor was so fired up for evangelism. He just said, we, we got to be more evangelistic. And so he came to the senior pastor and said, hey, I got some ideas. And what do you think about these ideas? And the senior pastor said, yes, but I think we got to go about it a different way. And the associate pastor didn't like that. And here it is. They want 
to be better evangelists, but they don't agree on the method of how to do that. And ultimately, you have a church of thousands split because of that. One more word, and I have no one in mind. But listen, if you are always agreeing to disagree, I agree to disagree, I agree to disagree, I agree to disagree, maybe you're just too disagreeable. Maybe you're just too strong with your positions and preferences. Look, the reason why this matters is because the gospel matters. The reason why this matters is because Christ's reputation matters. If we say a nation divided against itself cannot stand, then neither can our church family. And so Jesus did everything, laid down his life for our unity, wants us to stay unified. Because a church that's standing together, that links arms, that's of the same mind, same heart, same goal, same soul, they're going to make an impact on the dark forces of this world. And Christ is calling us today, today, if there's conflict, if there's dissension, if there's division, then Paul's words to you is, I urge you, I urge you, be reconciled, be at peace, be one. Let's pray. Well, Father, we uh, are always challenged by your word, encouraged with your word. Father, if we're not for your word, we would be lost. We'd be making all kinds of shipwreck of our faith and disgracing you and the church. But Lord, you've called us to be family, brothers and sisters, bricks in a building, parts of a body. We are one even as you are one. Jesus died for it. Jesus prays for it. He's up in heaven right now, interceding on our behalf. And so, Lord, we must, we must maintain our unity. Father, we recognize that the reality of conflicts is unavoidable. We will disagree. We'll do that at home. We'll do that here in the church. It's not so much disagreeing as much as it is how we deal with those disagreements. Father, we're always to regard one another as more important than ourselves, to give preference to each other, to love one another, to be quick to forgive, to keep a short record of wrongs, to allow love to prevail. And so, God, I pray desperately that here at Grace Church Monterey Bay, we would never allow peripheral issues to rise to the place of prominence. God, help us to reject the temptation to be me-minded instead of being Christ-minded. Help us to fulfill our mission. We're never going to be able to glorify God by exalting the Savior, magnifying Christ, ministering to the church, and multiplying disciples if we have division. So would you please help us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.